morning again, <clears throat> one last time. Thank you for all who came. Thank you for inviting us. We really enjoyed the week. Enjoyed interacting with you students. And uh, it's always a time of refreshing for us as all, as well, to see um, young people whose hearts are after God. And it's always a blessing to see how God uses different people throughout a week like this to connect with different ones. Maybe something I said connected with some, not with others. Maybe something somebody else said connected with those others. Maybe something you students did, interaction. But God uses all of us with all of our gifts to reach each other. This week we've been looking at the word, the importance of preaching the word in order to preaching and reading the word in order to be established in the faith, but not the word through the lenses of Judaism. We looked at 2 Timothy, where the Apostle Paul told Timothy, you've known a child from the Holy Scriptures. You've known the Holy Scriptures from a child. Your mother and your grandmother taught you them. However, he says three or four times throughout that book, (coughs) he says, what I want you to do (coughs) is preach the word the way you've been taught from me. So in other words, preach the word through the lenses that I have taught you. And what was unique about the Apostle Paul's teaching was that the mystery kept secret from the foundation of the world was revealed to him. The gospel, the gospel message, the gospel that transforms us and translates us into the kingdom of his son was not revealed until after the resurrection because the resurrection is what completed the gospel. So... That was not revealed till after the resurrection and the apostles and the apostle Paul took that and they suddenly saw Jesus in all scripture, even in the Old Testament. And as we said, if we can preach the Old Testament in a Jewish synagogue and not cause a riot, we have not preached the Old Testament correctly. Because the apostle Paul taught the Old Testament in these Jewish synagogues and caused the riots he did because he saw Jesus in them and he preached Jesus through the Old Testament and Paul is telling Timothy, that's what, how you are supposed to preach the scriptures. That is, and you're supposed to ordain faithful men who will be able to teach others the same thing. And so we looked at the gospel, how it is in the Bible. Look at the gospel in First and Second Samuel, the gospel in Psalms, the gospel in Second Timothy, different places. How when we preach the scriptures through gospel-centered lenses, it changes everything. Now the question is, what is the gospel? We kept talking about the gospel this week and made allusions to what it is, but I'm going to give a more complete explanation on what it is this morning. You may be thinking, I thought you said you're going to talk about the sin of Achan. I did change course. Because of the way it went this week, I'm going to preach a little more fully on what um, the gospel is. But let me just give you a very, very brief rundown on the sin of Achan. Achan sinned. We know the story. He was executed in the valley of Achor. Valley of Achor became a place known as judgment. When you think of Napoleon, when he, when he met his end at a place called Waterloo, today we talk about where will you meet your Waterloo. That means where will you meet your end. And the Valley of Achor became known as kind of like the Waterloo. Where will you meet your Valley of Achor? Valley of Achor was a place of judgment. When Israel broke these covenants that we talked about this week, broke the Mosaic covenant, God judged them in the Valley of Achor. And then in Hosea, it talks about that. Hosea says that God is going to let, get, take them captive at the hand of the Assyrians. The valley, it will be their valley of Achor. 
And then he says, I will give the valley of Achor for a door of hope. Now, he is going to redeem them in the place. He's going to go to them in that place of judgment and tell them, you are not my people and I will not be your God. And disown them. Then, rejected, cursed Israel would be redeemed. And he will go back to the same place where it was said unto them, you are not my people. There shall they be called the children of the living God. The place of judgment becomes a place of mercy when the gospel enters. Who in the Bible were the recipients of that mercy promised in Hosea? The people to whom First Peter was written. Now read First Peter and compare First Peter with Hosea and watch how often Peter quotes Hosea to get a picture. That's where we were going to go, but that, I'm just going to give you that outline so you can go. Do that on your own. What is the gospel? Let's get back to that. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. So he's saying, look, I'm going to preach to you the gospel, and this gospel is the gospel that you received from me, It is the gospel in which you stand. This is the anchor for your life. And you are saved by this gospel if you don't forget it. In other words, this salvation I'm preaching you, this gospel is your only hope of being being saved. But if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, if we forget that and distort the gospel, we are not going to get saved and our children are not going to get saved. For unless you have believed in vain, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. The revelation was made known to him how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again. And the problem we're facing today is a lot of people... They think, well, the gospel is so weak in many churches, and it is in many churches. They say, so we are going to start a church, and we are going to preach the full gospel. And then they say the full gospel is teaching them the all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Did you know not everything in the Bible is the gospel? Everything in the Bible is true, but not everything in the Bible is gospel. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God is in the Bible and is terribly true, but it's not the gospel. In fact, I'll take it a step further and tell you repentance is not the gospel. Repentance is a very necessary prerequisite for experiencing the gospel. You had better repent if you want to experience the gospel. But Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. You see how he's differentiated between those two? I'll take a step further and say baptism is not the gospel. Baptism is a very necessary thing we need to do if we have experienced the gospel, but it's not the gospel. Why do I say that? Because the apostle Paul said, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So anyway, there are things that we need to do in order to be saved. But what we do is not the gospel. What we do is what it takes to experience the gospel. The gospel is history. 
It is the good news what Christ did for us. It is not what we do for God. What we do for God is the fruit of the gospel. But it's not the gospel. Let's keep the gospel simple. It is that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose again. Now, the the reason that is good news is because of the effect that gospel has on our lives. And we're going to talk about that effect this morning. There's a lot of debate. I was talking with a sister earlier this week about the whole thing of imputed versus imparted righteousness. How, how many of you have heard that debate? How many know the difference? <clears throat> imputed righteousness is Christ's righteousness, the righteous deeds that he performed when he takes that and credits it to our account, something we have not personally done, but his righteousness becomes credited to us. That's imputed. Imparted righteousness is the righteous deeds that we do for him as a result of what he's done for us. In other words, his imputed righteousness transforms us, makes us into a new creation. Out of that flows from a new heart, a righteousness where we begin to walk in victory. Yes, we may stumble. Yes, we may fall. But our lives are patterned by growth and ever-increasing realization of what he's done for us. We grow in righteousness. That's imparted. Imparted is what comes out of our lives as a result of what he has done for us. There's a difference. Both of those are true for the Christian. But you can never have imparted righteousness without imputed. Whenever somebody says... I don't believe in the imputed righteousness of Christ. I believe in the imparted. He has lost the gospel. And you say, that's strong. It is strong, but it's true. What he is saying is this. Those who say that are saying this. They will say that the new birth is nothing more than forgiveness of sins, making us clean, giving us a clean slate, And then we're forgiven and then we are, Christ comes in and moves in our hearts in in order for us to do righteous deeds. And that's all, that's true. But they say we have no righteousness yet. And the only righteousness a Christian ever has is what he experientially performs as a result of what Christ did in his life. He builds his own righteousness. That's what they'll say. That's the position of imparted righteousness only. So, what is the mystery kept secret from the foundation of the world? I believe to understand what I'm going to say this morning, we need to understand the difference between imputed and imparted. Both of them are true in the Christian life, but imparted cannot happen without imputed first. Let me illustrate If you are a cripple, imparted righteousness is walking straight like a normal man after you've been healed from your cripple state. Imputed is when God comes in and completely heals you as a cripple and makes you whole through his wholeness. You can't walk straight unless you are straight. The imputed is what makes you straight. The imparted is when you walk as a result of that. Do you understand the difference? All right. 
So what's the mystery kept secret from the foundation of the world? The, this mystery, some people say that if you, if you read the New Testament, you cannot help but notice how often it talks about the mystery. The mystery kept secret from the foundation of the world. The mystery was revealed to the Apostle Paul. The mystery was revealed to the disciples. They preached this mystery, which is the God. We somehow understand it has something to do with the gospel. But what exactly is the mystery? Some people will turn to the book of Ephesians and say, where it talks about the mystery that the Jews and Gentiles should be of the same body. And they say, oh, the mystery was that the Jews and Gentiles would be reconciled, that nobody ever saw that coming in the Old Testament. No, that's not true. The Old Testament is full of prophecies that the Jews and Gentiles would be, well, would be reconciled and would be partakers of this gospel. When Ephesians, what Ephesians is saying is that this mystery has been fulfilled and it has resulted in the Jews and Gentiles being part of the same body. But that in and itself is not the mystery. The mystery, the book of Colossians tells us, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What that means is, every one of us are born as fallen sons of Adam. Because we are fallen sons of Adam, we are born in sin. We are born with a proclivity to sin. We cannot, aside from the Holy Spirit within us, live righteous lives, and we're born without that spirit. That, therefore, we go astray from the moment we're born, as the Bible tells us. So, <clears throat> let me read that in Colossians 1.25. Whereof I am a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations but is now made manifest to his saints... To whom God would make known what is, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we're born in that depraved state. We're born without the Spirit of God. We may not have been contaminated by all kinds of sins yet, but we're born in a way that the Holy Spirit of God is not in our lives. We're born in Adam, in other words. Adam is the head of all humanity with their natural birth. The mystery was, it was mysterious to those in the Old Testament, even the angels who desired to look into this thing. It was a mystery. When they looked at this, they said, how in the world? We see the holiness of God like nobody ever saw it. We see the absolute irreconcilable gulf between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. How is it possible for God to ever save that fallen humanity. And it baffled them because they saw that gulf between God and man. And they said, God cannot simply come down and forgive them and overlook them that without sacrificing his own holiness. And so they waited and so they waited for the mystery to be revealed. What they did not fully understand was that the mystery was that God was not going to simply forgive Forgiveness is part of it. God, when he, when Christ died on the cross, when he was buried, when he was resurrected, his execution became our execution. When we put our faith in him, we by faith are crucified with him. We are buried with him. We rise with him. Guess who died when we, are bur- uh, when we died with him? We died. Adam was executed. We rose again, and who rose instead of Adam? Christ. 
That's what the Bible means when it says we are in Christ. The book of Ephesians is all about being in Christ, who we are in Christ, our position in Christ. In fact, it says in whom, in him, in Christ, or some form of that roughly 30 times in the book of Ephesians. That's the theme. It is because we are in Christ that we are loved. Ephesians tells us that. We stand before him holy and without blame because we are in him. And it is because of that position that we're in him that he loves us. Young people, he does not love you because of what you did or did not do today. He loves you because you're in him instead of in Adam. That's the mystery. What they didn't understand was that God would redeem fallen sons of Adam by executing them and rebirthing them into a brand new race of people over whom Adam is the, uh, over whom Christ is the head not Adam and gives them a new heart the old man was executed the new man is Christ the old man Adam is gone the new man Christ is on the throne you can still sin when you lose sight of that reality when we forget about that reality But your life is going to be one with Christ in you and the Holy Spirit in you that's going to pick you up and keep you going and he is not going to let go of you. He is going to keep you going to the end. So the book of Ephesians, by the way, is all about who we are in Christ. The book of Colossians, it's hard to study the book of Ephesians without studying the book of Colossians because Colossians is so similar to Ephesians. But the major difference between the two books is this. The book of Ephesians is all about who we are in Christ. The book of Colossians is all about who Christ is in us and to us. That's the biggest difference, and there's a lot of overlap. So this mystery is why regeneration is called the new birth, why Jesus said we must be born again. Christ's resurrection births us into a new race of people. We are birthed through the resurrection from the dead. (coughs) We are like a cat chasing a mouse and we can try to train that cat all we want to you throw a mouse in front of it by the time you think you have it civilized throw a mouse in front of it and see what happens that is what we do when we try to get unregenerate sons of adams to live the christian life and that's why there's so much carnality in so many churches because we're not preaching the gospel and we are trying to get people to live the life of christ and their cats We're like a leopard that cannot change its spots. We can perform, but the leopard nature comes back. We can bleach those spots, but as the hair grows back out, there they are again. In Jeremiah 17, verse 1, it says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altar. This means... Our sin is written on a surface that is so hard it cannot be erased. It took the point of a diamond to write it on it. It was so hard. And if you have a substance on which your sin is written that it takes a diamond pen, are you going to be able to just easily brush that off? Are you going to be able to transform that? No. It's written there, engraved on you. Nothing can erase that. Unless we understand that, unless we believe in the depravity of man, the gospel will never be clear to us. It is one of those things that we said in the first day, hold fast the form or the pattern of sound words. That's one 
of the, those things that the form of sound words consists of. If we miss this part of the form, the depravity of man, the gospel is basically meaningless. We believe, okay, the gospel forgives, but we transform ourselves and the gospel loses its meaning. There was a man, I believe his name was Charles Simeon. He lived in this hundreds of years ago over in Europe. Back in the days when they had servants who would work in the houses. Anyway, he was a godly man. He was a godly preacher of his day. But he had a weakness. He liked to sleep in in the morning too, too much. And the Lord began to lay on his heart, you need to get up earlier and you need to seek my face. And he wrestled. I don't want to do this. And he began to think, okay, how am I going to keep myself accountable to obey this? So he said, all right, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll get the house servant to come up and wake me every morning at 5 o'clock, knock on my door, and say it's time to get up. And I'm going to make a vow. Any time I do not get up when she knocks on that door, I'm going to give her a gold sovereign. Now, that's a lot of money, and I don't want to give that, so that's going to motivate me to get up. Guess what happened? Next morning, knock, 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 5 o'clock. Okay, time to get up. Okay. And he doesn't want to get up. And he starts thinking, well, you know, this servant, this maid in the house, she's a very poor woman. A gold sovereign would do her so much good. I would actually be doing a good deed by giving her this sovereign. Well, okay. And he rolled over and went to sleep. Do you see how... Now, it's a humorous illustration, but that is how we try to deal with sin. We can do this in the flesh. And aside from that transformation, the flesh is not going to do it. It's going to find a way of justifying itself and making itself seem spiritual in order to stay in there. And finally, we convince ourselves that it's actually a godly thing to be doing. But that is what an unregenerate son of Adam looks like. Now, this was perhaps not sin that he was doing, but we do what he did there with getting up in the matters of sin if we're in an unregenerate state. So, we can do all kinds of good deeds, but we cannot, unless we are part of the new race of people in Christ, control what goes on inside our hearts. We can outwardly perform, but we won't. And the interesting thing is, an unregenerate son of Adam, the more thoroughly he performs his religious exercises, the more likely he is to be morally corrupted in some, at some level inside. Because it seems that his religious exercises that are being done through the power of the flesh also express themselves with inner corruption and moral failure. <clears throat> so Romans chapter 5. Let's turn to that. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died at a time when we were powerless to live for him. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is a figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded to many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, (coughs) but the free gift is of many offenses under justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by, <coughs> by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible is full of theological and it's full of practical. The practical and theological are both important. However, if you will go go to the book of Romans, you will notice there are 16 chapters in there. The first 11 chapters are theological. And I'll define the terms. What I mean by theological is the theology of what God has done for us. What I mean by practical is what we do for God. So anyway... The epistles begin with the theological. They end with the practical. In other words, they lay the foundation of what God has done for us first. Then it says, chapter 12 begins with, I beseech you, therefore. In other words, what we do for God from there on out flows out of what he did for us. Because of all that God has done for us, Now we do this for him. You get this wrong, you have a contorted gospel, and all other religions get it wrong. They begin with what we do for God and say, therefore, God will do this for you. So why choose the theological instead of the practical this morning or this week? I believe they're both important. But the reason we choose it is because there is nothing more practical than for us to know that God is for us. What's more practical than that? Why do I say that? I have never seen anybody 
walk in victory who does not understand who he is in Christ. Every time I lose sight of who I am in Christ, I begin to flounder. And I've had to tell my children at times when if there was tension, I'm sorry, there was tension going on between me and God too. Because I will always relate to my fellow man the way I feel God is relating to me. It is fail-proof. You can tell exactly where somebody's walk with God is by the way he relates to other people. If somebody is harsh, critical, critical attitude, picking, it is because they somehow feel that's what God is demanding of them. And when they have this open heaven and are resting in the grace and mercy of God and know who they are in Christ, the practical that flows out of them is they administer the same thing to other people. It's always that way. And you can know who you are in Christ and relate to others in grace. And one day you lose sight of that and you begin to feel condemned. You're going to be ministering to the others that day the same way. So that's why I say there's nothing more practical than getting this foundation right and knowing who we are in him. It's because the sufficiency of Christ's work is being undermined in our day. It is because of the foundation of what we are in Christ Without that foundation, we will always live in defeat. So, I'm going to begin at verse 12. Verses 12 through 21. And I'm going to switch over to the ESV. Because it's a little easier to follow this passage of scripture in the ESV. We're going to go through verses 12 through 21. And look at the new man. The new race of people that I told you. This is... A description of the result, what has happened to us as a result of being made into a new race of people. It is a hard passage of scripture to understand. It is often considered one of the hardest paragraphs or passages in the entire New Testament to, uh, to grapple with. And I can see why. So maybe there's a few things I'm missing. I acknowledge that possibility and I want to learn. But I'm going to tell you what I think it's saying as clearly as I can. And if I'm missing something, may God help me to understand it better, either through you pointing it out or God showing me in the future. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death brought (coughs) sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's how it begins. This passage of scripture endeavors to explain our bondage to sin and death. It gives the cause for the universality of sin. Why is sin so universal? Here's why. And that verse is written. However, the main purpose of this passage, 12 to 21, is not to show the universality of sin. Though it does that. Paul seems to take for granted that the universality of sin and death is understood. His main objective here is to explain the atonement that he mentioned in verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Mankind as a whole understood that something was terribly wrong. Something was way out of whack with the human race. Why this propensity to sin? Why universal death? That nobody's escaping from it. So, having just mentioned that it was through Christ that we received the atonement, the question arises, why do we need atonement 
And just how does this atonement take place? And then Paul says that all the sin and wickedness and decay came about as a result of Adam's sin. One man sinned and death passed to all men because all sinned. In fact, Adam's sin brought death to the whole human race. When God told Adam, the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die, he meant what he said. And that death eventually caught up with him physically, but immediately there was some form of spiritual death took place in their heart. Why do I say that? What is death? Death is when there's a separation of the spirit from the body. When God's spirit separated from humans, the human spirit, that spirit in a sense died spiritually though that spirit they thank you though the human spirit is still alive yet it is dead in the sense that it is cut off from the life of god and is powerless to live for god and that spiritual death took place then paul pauses the apostle paul pauses here it is as if he anticipates a misunderstanding of his statement for all sinned The next verses, verses 13 through 17, are in parentheses. The King James Version has them set off in parentheses. The ESV has a dash at the end of verse 12 to show that he is explaining more fully what he just said. In other words, when he said, because all sinned, he's going to take 13 through 17 to explain what he meant, because all sinned. Then he's going to pick up in verse 18 and finish the thought of verse 12. So he says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. I'm going to read 12 and 18 and skip 13 to 17. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's what he wanted to say in this passage. But he took the majority of the verses in order to dispel a false interpretation of what he said. Verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now the question arises, when verse 12 says, because all sinned, Does that mean because all committed individual acts of sin and that is why they died? Or did they somehow sin in Adam and that is why they all died? And that's a debate that keeps going on back and forth today. Well, was it experiential sin that flowed out as a result of this proclivity to sin? Or was there something imputed to them from Adam? And I don't know. I'll let the theologians hash out. Just how deep Adam's sin, deeply Adam's sin was imputed to us, but it was to some level imputed to us because we died because of his sin. We reaped the results of his sin. So to some level, it was imputed to us. But how deeply, I'm not going there this morning. <clears throat> it's a volatile question for any of you who've been involved in these discussions. But I believe this is important to understand because Paul is making a parallel between the first Adam and the last Adam, who is Christ. He is going to say that we receive Christ's righteousness in the same way that we received Adam's sin. 
That's what he's leading up to here. If we received Adam's sin by experientially practicing sin, then we receive Christ's righteousness by experientially practicing righteousness. Now, there are people who would love that interpretation. And there are people who insist that's actually how it is. But I believe the next verse refutes that interpretation. Let's stick with verse 13 for a moment before we go to the next verse, verse 14. This verse is saying that before the law of Moses, everyone died. From Adam to Moses, everyone died. Why does he say Adam and why does he say Moses? Because Adam had an explicit oral command that he heard with his own ears. You shall not eat of the tree. He violated it and died. Under Moses, Israel heard an explicit oral command given from Mount Sinai. And they violated it and were judged. Between that, we don't know how much man heard the oral law of God, but everyone between those who had not heard the oral law of God still died. And he's saying they died not because they themselves had disobeyed an explicit oral law of God, but because of Adam. In Adam, they died. So at some level, Adam's sin was imputed to his descendants. We read that in Hebrews. Abraham paid Levi, the tribes of Levi, which were hundreds of years after Abraham, paid tithes in Abraham. When Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi, hundreds of years later, was credited with having done that because of their father. Later on, in verse 19, Paul says that Adam's descendants were made sinners through Adam's sin. So do we sin because we're sinners, or are we sinners because we sin? The age-old question. There is much discussion that often leads to confusion with these verses. We're not going into that too deeply today. We'll stick to a few points that seem clear enough from this. Adam sinned, and because he sinned, we all were made sinners Verse 19, it explicitly says that. And because we were all made sinners, we all died. It also explicitly says that. So we can get at least that from that. Although we were all made sinners, we were not held accountable for sin that was committed in ignorance of the law of God. Though we died at least physically, it said, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. That's where... I'm not exactly sure. I may have get this a little wrong, but when it says we died because of Adam's sin, but sin is not imputed where there is no law, something happened that caused us to die because of it. But I don't believe that somebody went to hell because of something he had no idea of. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Although sin was not imputed to those who sinned in ignorance, yet everyone died, even those who had sinned in ignorance. Why does verse 14 say from Adam to Moses? We explained that. So Adam violated an explicit oral command given by God directly to Adam's ear, and so also did children of Israel. Now, 
Paul is acknowledging that there were many people who lived between Adam and Moses who had not heard an explicit oral law from God. However, they all died too. The question arises, why did they die? And he says, because to some degree, Adam's sin made them sinners. So they had to at least physically die. And spiritually in the sense that they did not have that connection with God through the Spirit of God. However, just like, and and, and so I I say this, the question arises why, and the answer is that to some degree the sin of Adam has been imputed to them. That is why I said that this verse brings out that they did not die because of their personal experiential sins. Like I said, many people would like to believe that, but the verse next verse would uh, would say differently. They did not die because of their personal experiential sins. It says they died because of Adam. Adam's sin affected them. Therefore, the righteousness of Christ is not our personal experiential righteousness either. Because he's making that contrast. Just like we experience the result and the reaping for Adam's sin, so we experience the result and the reaping for Christ's righteousness. Just like Adam's sin made us sinners, so Christ's righteousness makes us righteous. You see the parallel? If you're going to say one is experiential, the other one has to be too. If you're going to say the one is imputed, you have to say the other one is imputed too. However, just like personal experiential sin flows out from our position as a sinner in Adam. Did you follow? Do you understand what I'm saying? Just like we begin to experientially practice sin from a position of being a sinner in Adam, so also personal experiential righteousness flows out of our position of being made righteous in Christ. That's the imparted righteousness I talked about earlier. Because we're made sinners, we practice sin. Because we are made righteous in Christ, we practice righteousness. First John and many other places in Romans 6, the next chapter. Now, he says here that Adam was a type of him who was to come. <clears throat> the one who was to come was Christ. So Adam was a type of Christ. How was Adam a type of Christ? Adam was the head of the entire human race. What happened to Adam happened to his descendants. In the same way, Christ is the head of an entire new race. What happened to Christ happened to all those who are a part of this new race. Adam's sin was passed to all his descendants, so Christ's righteousness was passed to all his descendants. That's why it was. He is a type of Adam, was a type of him who was to come, Christ. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's sin, one man's trespass, much more, remember those two words, much more, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now, the minor point of this passage is that Christ undid what Adam did. That's clear enough. What Adam did to us, Christ undid that for us and set us free from the curse of Adam. That's the minor point. In Christ, we gained back what we lost in Adam. 
However, that's not the major point. The major point is that we, what we received in Christ is much greater than what we lost in Adam. What Christ did at the cross gave us much more than what we lost in the garden with Adam. That's where the words much more come into play. That's the major point of this passage. You see, Christ is like Adam in the sense that as the head of the new, his new race of humanity, his gift affects his entire new race of humanity. Like Adam, as the head of the human race, affected his entire race of humanity. But that's where the likeness ends. Now, Paul tries to make the point that the effect of being in Christ is greater, much more, than the effect of being in Adam. We miss the point of this passage if we do not understand that the point of the passage is to highlight that the effect of Christ's work is greater than the effect of Adam's fall. After all, Adam was not seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus at the right hand of God. We are. Ephesians 1 and 2. When he rose, he went up far above all principalities and powers and every name that is named. And we rose with him and he sat at the right hand of God, a position of authority. We're seated there with him, that position of authority, way higher than Adam ever had. Paul is not trying to say that before the fall, man was at a number 10. When Adam fell, man fell to the number zero. Now in Christ, we're back at 10. He is saying that in Christ, that in Adam, we were at 10. When Adam fell, humanity fell to zero. Now in Christ, his people are at 10,000 and more. That's what he's trying to say. The words much more are the key words in verse 15. Paul is saying that the free gift, the gift of righteousness, verse 17, is much more than the trespass, the trespass of Adam. <clears throat> Let's see the minor point first of these three verses. Verse 19. No, I think I messed up here in my notes. Yes, I did mess up. Okay. Injected something. Now I'm losing my place trying to repeat some of the things I said. Anyway, four, verse nineteen. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The one and the many are the key there. As the one man Adam was the cause of the many, all his descendants being made sinners. So also the one man, Jesus Christ, um, will be the cause of all who are in Christ being made righteous and receiving eternal life. Many are in Adam, and so many die because of Adam's sin. The many who are in Christ receive eternal life and the gift of righteousness because of one man's grace. All who have received grace have received grace strictly because of one man's work. There's no other way to receive grace. If death, okay, let's, let, let's jump to, now, now I got past my confusing notes here. Let's jump to verse 16 now. And the free gift is not like the result. Look at that word result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following 
One trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now, here's another contrast to the gospel, the free gift, and the sin of Adam. Folks, why is this important today? Because if we don't understand this, and I know this is a deep chapter, and it's not for nothing that people say it's one of the harder ones to understand. But if we don't understand what Christ's work did for us, we will never live effectively for Christ. We would always lack assurance of salvation. And when we lack that, we will flounder and turn around and live a life of defeat. So look at this. The result, judgment following, free gift following. Those are the key words to verse 16. Here's another contrast to the free gift and trespass. Again, the minor point here is that justification or being made righteous is a free gift. But the major point is the foundation for judgment and the foundation for the free gift. Paul is here again showing how far Christ's work excels Adam's work. The major point of this passage. He is comparing results. He is comparing cause and effect. He is saying that judgment followed one act of disobedience. But he is also saying that the free gift followed many acts of disobedience. What's he trying to say? Grace is greater than judgment because judgment is the natural and fitting response to sin. Grace is not the natural and fitting response to sin. If one act of disobedience results in condemnation as a natural and fitting response to sin, then the natural and fitting response to many transgressions is much condemnation. If one act of sin brings condemnation, many acts of sin should bring much condemnation. Right? But he's saying that's where grace is greater than sin. Then uh, it's greater than sin. Grace is greater than sin because sin is an unnatural starting point, an unnatural result for grace or unnatural cause for grace. Judgment following one act, grace following many acts. What should be the foundation for much condemnation became the catapult for grace. Grace is greater than sin because sin is an unnatural starting point for grace. Grace not only had to overcome the natural condemnation to one sin, it had to overcome the natural much condemnation for many sins. Sin had multiplied exponentially since Adam. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive (coughs) the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And he's saying here, here's not an exact parallel. Because of sin, death reigned, we are servants. But because of grace, not only are we are free, we are the ones reigning. Grace is greater, far greater than judgment. Why so? Because not only are we free from sin, but we reign as kings with Christ. Before sin reigned over us, now we're the ones on the throne with Christ. Christ. 
There's so many people to teach the gospel today as you're forgiven for your sins. And now you make yourself righteous by what you do. This passage is saying, no, 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 no. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not only are you forgiven, not only did, uh, did the gospel undo what Adam did in you, but you are in a position that far excels what Adam ever was before he sinned. We are a higher place of authority. We are a higher standing with God. Everything is greater. And it's not because of what we did. It's because of grace and what he did. So our position of being higher than Adam is not there because of how we walked. It's there because of how he walked and his grace. That's the point of this chapter. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. There's no other way of salvation. No one can be made righteous except through Christ's righteousness. Any other attempts to create a righteousness in us will result in failure and condemnation. Verse 19. Let me me make one comment. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. People take that to teach universalism. They take that verse to say that everybody will eventually be saved. The context of this is talking those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. We have to understand this to be saying all who were in Adam were in condemnation. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all who are in him. The context brings that out. Those who are not in him aren't being saved. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's disobedience, the many will be made righteousness, righteous. The many who are in Adam were made sinners through Adam's sin. So the many who are in Christ are in Christ are made righteousness, are made righteous through Christ. I don't know how you can get much clearer than that verse. Just as we were made sinners in Adam, so we are made righteous in him. Just as Adam's sin was imputed to us to some degree, so Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So far in the passage, we find the word trespass when used in the singular to be referring to Adam's trespass. Adam's trespass was unique in that it was a violation of a known spoken word of the Lord. That was the kind of trespass that God wanted to increase through the law. He had said earlier, sin is not imputed where there is no law in the beginning. In the end, he says, you know what? I need to increase sin. The human nature, human nature is such that it will defy law. God said, I have to bring that human nature to the surface and expose what's there. And that sinful heart they have, I have to expose by having them react to a law. And the law entered in order to increase the same type of trespass that Adam did, a rebellion against a known law of God. Why does he do something like that? Why increase sin? He has already said in an earlier verse that the foundation for grace, yes, I should say the catapult instead of foundation, the catapult for grace was sin. 
Grace cannot be shown where there is no sin. So God had to bring the law in to increase sin so that he could show grace. That when sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And that's how, basically how the chapter ends. Does that sound a little like easy believism? To say that we had to sin in order to experience grace? Let me suggest something to you. If this does not sound like easy believism, we have misunderstood the chapter. If our interpretation of this chapter cannot lead somebody to say that sounds like easy believism, we've missed it. Why do I say that? Because the Apostle Paul knew it would sound like easy believism. He acknowledged as much in the very next chapter when he said, all right, so I know what you guys are thinking. You're thinking if if sin is needed in order to experience grace, then let's just sin with abandon in order to experience grace with abandon. That's how he starts chapter 6. And he says, no, 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 that's not how it works. Because when Christ's righteousness was imputed to us, We became righteous. We died to sin. Adam in us died. We have Christ on the throne. And we have regenerate hearts who delight to do his law. And our hearts and the spirit of God within us will not allow us to live in sin and abandon. Though we may stumble, it's not how it works. It not only forgave us and gave grace, but it transformed us. And therefore, that transformation is not going to allow us to do that way. But he knew it sounded like easy believism. I listened to two Catholics go through this passage. Boy, by the time they were finished, there's no way I could have gotten easy believism out of that. They completely misunderstood it. But Paul is saying, no, I'm not teaching easy believism, though I know it sounds that way. In order to counter easy believism, we go into Romans 6, which is for you to do some other time. May God bless you.